Um, I sort of feel like this is a um, second home <laughs> because uh, we've been to, both of our children live in New Jersey. So we get to come up often and see them and see our grandkids. And when we do, we come here to church with Sadie and her family. So, and our son lives in, and his family live in Montvale. So um, we have been here wow, numerous times. And so it feels right, at, I feel right at home. <laughs> um, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about um, well, first, I'll tell you a little bit about my background. Um, I've worked in nonprofits for uh, 47 years, I guess, um, at this point. Um, I went to school at the university at George Washington University and majored in international affairs. And after that, had my only job for one year that was working for a profit-making company in those days, which was Pan Am. <laughs> and that was, um, in, in those days, it was very profit-making and you couldn't imagine that Pan Am would ever go away. But it did. <laughs> so then my husband and I were both in the Peace Corps in Bolivia and then came back to the United States and I started in working with a nonprofit hospital at that point. So in Alexandria, Virginia. So ever since then, it's been pretty much nonprofits. Um, probably because of our experience in the Peace Corps, we've been really interested in um, developing countries and especially in Central and South America because we can speak Spanish. Still a little rough, but we can, we can communicate just fine. Um, so in 2001, my husband got the idea that we should, the, the youth in our church were going to the Dominican Republic and Mexico and other places on mission trips. And he said, how come the adults don't have a foreign mission trip? So he decided we would get one started. At, at that point, we were going to Church of the Incarnation in Dallas. And so the, the idea came up and the research needed to be done in January and, and then we were going to try to go that summer. So at first we thought, well, Argentina or Peru or somewhere in South America, but it turned out that Honduras had um, a way to bring you into plan and they had people on their staff, on the bishop staff down there that would take you to two or three different sites let you talk with the people about what they needed in that particular community. And so there was um, a way to do it rather quickly and figure out where you wanted to go. And then when you, if you were doing, for example, a construction project, they would um, let you send money ahead and help you get the, the materials ready so that when you got there, you didn't have to spend the whole week just gathering materials. You could actually get started doing something. So my husband and another man went down to check out the uh, different sites available in Honduras, came back, took lots of pictures, came back, showed us the, the group that was interested in going, um, the different sites and what was needed in each one. And we decided on Santa Cruz Arriba and thought, well, we'll go there the first year and then we'll figure out where we're gonna go after that. 
So we all, we went down. It was, um, as he calls it, a three-ring circus. There was uh, construction going on because they needed to expand the church. We had a medical clinic. We had a dental clinic. We had a full uh, pharmacy. We had teachers working with the teachers in the school. And something else. Um, I can't remember now, but anyway, there were a lot of different projects going on. Um, what we discovered in that first, and, and in our family, we had, we had a lot of different things going on too. We had had, we, we were doing a remodeling project at, at our house for several months before that, um, that had been a, a, a disaster in a lot of ways. Um, my, my son was getting married at the end of May, the Memorial Day weekend, so we had lots of exciting plans, and it was here in, in New Jersey, um, the wedding, so we had lots of exciting plans leading up to that. And then very unexpectedly, um, my father died in mid-May, two weeks before the wedding. So by the time we got to the end of June to go on this mission trip, I was kind of exhausted and less enthusiastic than I might have been, <laughs> than, than I had been earlier. But when we got there, there was, there was just something about that community and the people that just attracted you to that. And, and it wasn't just me, it was everybody on the trip because we went back there for four more years after that. We did not switch communities <laughs> or go to a different country. We were dedicated to these people in Santa Cruz Arriba. Um, so the first year I worked in the medical clinic because in the Peace Corps, um, I had done a tuberculosis control project. So that's, that's where I started that year. And then right after, well, what we discovered while we were there, the two huge needs were potable water. The water that came out of the one little well they had was darker than this floor. I mean, it was, it was horrible. It was brown, very little of it. Um, very few houses had their own wells. So we, they really needed to, it's in the mountains outside of Tegucigalpa. So they really had to drill to get down far enough. And when, they, when we finally did that the second year, they had to go down 290 feet, but they got potable water. And um, the other huge need was for the women to have work in their own community. The ones who did have, have work were going into Tegucigalpa to be live-in domestics. And so they really ended up with Sunday afternoon free. By the time they would get back out to their community on a Sunday morning, and then they had to get back again on Sunday night in order to be there for Monday morning. So it was really, really difficult for them. The ones who were young and didn't have their own families yet really missed their parents. The ones who had children had to leave their children with mothers, sisters, somebody during that whole week and were just missed their children desperately. Um, there were a few who had worked in a chicken processing plant, which also was unpleasant and required that they work um, any hours that the company said, and then all of a sudden there might not be work, so they were told they didn't need to come to work for a few days. So it was very um, 
unpredictable and very unpleasant work. But the community just desperately needed that income. The husbands in the community, most of the men were, uh, are still subsistence farmers. So it's, it's very difficult to predict what the weather's going to do and they don't, they really raise only enough to supplement their family's food and don't get it to market with a few exceptions. There are a few who get things to market, but very few of them. So the average income in that area was uh, $1,800 to $2,000 a year for a family of six. Um, that it, it's just, it's unfathomable that they were getting along at, at that level. So we were commissioned um, to figure out a co-op that the women could run and make extra money. And it was very obvious that we needed to do something where we would bring whatever they produced back to the United States to sell it so that it would bring new uh, capital into the community. And so there was a committee of four of us who thought that we were really researching all of this very carefully. <laughs> so we learned from one of the people on the bishop's staff that uh, the women all learned to embroider when they were little girls. So we thought, ah, okay, because three or four of us like doing various stitching, and so we thought, oh, we can do this, okay. <laughs> so we, we thought if they already know how to embroider, what we need to do, and we went even on a field trip to San Antonio and talked to a church there that had been working in another area of Honduras on projects that were applique and embroidery, and they were doing big wall hangings and banners, and they were taking orders from churches that were about to celebrate their 50th or 75th or 100th anniversary for a, a celebratory uh, banner, and they were charging 300 to 900 dollars for these pieces. We thought, well, that, that sounds great, but we would like to do something that's like pillows or table runners or things that we might be able to sell um, to friends, family, from the bookstore at our church, whatever. We didn't think that sales and marketing part through real carefully, but <laughs> we, um, and we had a, so we had a, a drive uh, for fabric donations. We had no idea when we went down that next summer in 2002 whether we would have, we thought somewhere between two and eight women would show up. We had 23 and we were, the church was under construction. The community center had the medical clinic in it. So we were in one of the women's living rooms, which was, there's nothing small enough to tell you how big it was. It was like from over there to the wall. It was teeny tiny. We were all crammed in there and then we had to have some tables so that they could work on something. When we got the tables out and we started working, uh, it was real obvious they didn't know how to embroider at all. They had had a lesson when they were little and they knew one stitch, but they didn't do it very well and they hadn't embroidered since then. So there was a real long learning curve involved. <laughs> And we thought, we didn't even think about teaching them embroidery. We just thought they knew that. We would teach them this very simple applique method, and we'd talk about how to run a co-op. 
So <clears throat> our plans changed, and we had, uh, that year, we had two teams back-to-back. -back. So, um, so I was there for two weeks, and at the end of the two weeks, it wasn't too good. I, I forgot to tell you about the designs. Um, because they don't have traditional embroidery in Honduras like they do in Guatemala and Mexico, we had gotten a Dallas artist, to Pamela Nelson, whose work is very much inspired by her uh, things she saw her grandmother and her mother do as she was growing up, quilts and embroidery and all that. And she paints, and she said, you know, I can't stitch. And I said, well, I don't care. We can stitch. You need to, <laughs> we can't paint, and you are the designer. So she did beautiful designs and still does them for us to, to today. So um, that's been an enormous gift from her. Um, so anyway, the women made some things, and two or three people on the trip bought them because they wanted to inspire them to go on, and a couple of those people still have them, and when you put them next to what they do today, you can't believe it. Um, I wish I remembered to bring a sample of those early ones. So we got back to Dallas, and we, they sent me a box in August of 50 pieces, and I just, I just wanted to cry. I just, I couldn't believe it. I kept pulling them out, and they were awful. They got off of the design, and instead of a pillow like this, with you know flowers placed as, as we had shown them how to do, I got these pieces like this big, with one flower over here and one down here and one. Oh, they were just and they were all around the embroidery. There were frayed edges from the um, all the appliques. It was just a disaster. There wasn't one single piece that we could salvage, and sell. So. What, while, luckily, for us, um, there was a woman from Tegucigalpa on the staff of the Episcopal Church there who um, came to Dallas for some medical treatment. She came to our house for dinner, and she saw them, and she went, okay, feo, which means how ugly, and I thought, good, she gets it. Okay, so, because <laughs> I didn't want to insult anybody by saying, these are ugly, and so, anyway, we... We, she said, I will go and take, I will get the women to get back to the design and the right size, and we will work on just covering the edges of the applique. And I'll go one day a week for a month. So she did, and when she, when, when they had that part done, she took pictures, sent them to me, said, are these good enough? And I said, yes, so she sent them to us, and we just embroidered all over them. And then I took them down in October and met with the women again. And they, it was like 23 heads all saying, oh, look at that, show us how to do this, show us how to do that. They were so excited. And I just couldn't believe they were going to, after I had to say to them, one of the hardest things I ever had to do was stand in front of them and say, I can't sell any of these, can you? And they said, no. So, of the 50 they had made. So, um, that's when, when they really got it and began to, it, now it took a while. It took, that first year was, it was rough. And we, but we have some people who have those very first ones, you know, it, one of the people on our board has 
a sofa, a sectional sofa that goes, and she has like the development of embroidery from the same design over the years. It's really interesting. So anyway, but that's, that's how we got started. It was, I thought, right then, <clears throat> this, this wouldn't have happened in the Peace Corps. If we, had, if we had done this, and we had brought them something that, that they really couldn't do, and they wouldn't have had the determination. I, I felt like somebody was going to say, you silly gringas, you know, <laughs> you think we can do this and we can make money at it, and we can't. But they didn't. They were determined they were going to learn how to do it. And they worked and worked and worked at it, and they weren't getting any money because we had explained to them that the way it was going to work was that they would make things and they would send them to us and we would sell them and then we would send them all the money. So, um, when we went back, oh, and it also became real obvious that one couldn't go down once a year and do this. You had to go at least four times during the year just to take supplies. You can't get DMC thread in Honduras. You can't get fusible web to put the, the appliques on. Um, there are a lot of things you can't get in Honduras. But, uh, I still, to this day, have fabric drives and in, in almost all of the fabrics that are in the appliques that you'll see on pillows are from donations in the United States, from individuals who clean out the, the fabric closet <laughs> uh, to uh, some of the fabric houses in the design district in Dallas. So, when I went back the next year on the mission trip, um, when they decided they would meet us out on the main road and take us in, and they had a little program. We would go in and have the opening service, and then they had a little program of folkloric dance from Honduras they wanted to do and all that. And, it was, and they had roses, a rose for each of the women who came off the bus. And so, you know, it was... It was a big deal, and it was like, oh, you know, the, these people are now back for the third time. They really, they're going to keep coming. So, they were, and they were working with us much more on the construction projects and other things. So, anyway, this one woman, Suyapa, grabbed onto my arm when I got off the bus, and she looked 20 years older than she had a few months before when I'd seen her. And I thought, what is wrong? And she, she didn't say anything. She wouldn't say anything at all. So we all walked down to the church, and she just held onto my arm. And the whole time through the whole service, she sat next to me and held onto my arm. And through the dancing afterwards outside, and finally I said, Suyapa, tell me what is wrong. And she said, I had to quit working in the co-op and go back to work to get money to feed my children. She had three children, and her husband worked, but he worked land that the family owned in another part of Honduras, so he was only back and forth every weekend or every other weekend. So she, and she was so upset. She said, I just want to work in the co-op. I, I don't want to have to go. So she was doing laundry for families and having to live in and leave her kids with her mother. So 
I went to Bill and my husband and said, do we have any extra money left? Is there anything that I could do to leave some money so that they could pay themselves at least a little bit for their hours while they're waiting for us to sell things and get the money back to them? So we left $1,000 in the, in the pot for them to kind of pay themselves a little. It wasn't even as much as they, the hours they worked. But it, that was critical because, and, and Suyapa is there to this day. She was there the first day, and she's president of the Santa Cruz Arriba Co-op now. And her daughter, Marlene, uh, finished school and is now in that co-op too, um, as are all four of her sisters in various co-ops. So what we discovered soon after that, so I think that was, that was one of those aha moments um, that you, you say, oh my gosh, these people are really depending on us. <laughs> I'm not sure what we started here, but, but they, they have committed to it and we have to stay committed to it. Um, we, we discovered, I discovered as I got to know them during that first year or two, that these women weren't all from Santa Cruz but we had people from four different communities. And the farthest one away, they were walking three hours each way every day. They were coming, starting before dawn and not getting home till after dark um, because they needed that work so much. And so they said, if you could start a co-op in our community, there are lots more women who could work who can't make this trip back and forth. The other two communities were an hour and a half's walk each way. So finally, in, we started in 2004, and finally by 2005, received our nonprofit status so that we could, as a separate nonprofit, and that way we could raise money and have a pot ready to, of $1,000 to leave with them to pay themselves a little bit as they were getting up to speed, and $1,000 for supplies to get started. So that's the way that the um, other, well, if there have been as many as six co-ops. There are five co-ops still. One co-op was in an area that just never got off the ground. It just it was, it's a very, very poor area and a very difficult area to get to. And we went through three groups of women and it, it just never worked. So we have five co-ops that have been going for a long time. Um, let's see, we have to skip through the years here pretty fast, but that beginning was really important because it was what I guess gave me the commitment. I just couldn't go down there and still couldn't go till this day and just face all those women and say, well, this has been really fun. Everybody in Dallas is getting tired of this and we don't want to do this anymore. Um, I, I'm happy to go as long as I can go. My husband says, now when you're 80, are you still going to want to go down there four or five times a year? And I'm thinking, well, I don't know if I'll be able to. So. Um, we're, we're trying to plan toward the future. But from this pathetic little start we had, <laughs> um, these women took off. And we've had, over, over the years, 
we have had an order from two hotels in Costa Rica for 1,402 pillows that they needed produced in five months. And when they started, when they started saying that, because all of the stitching is hand done, the only thing that each, each co-op has a sewing machine for sewing the backs on. And to show you how they don't, <laughs> this, is, this just kills me. They said, one time I thought, we had a new product that I thought it would be nice to have some edge stitching. It was a placemat, so it has some stitching around the edges to hold it down flat. And I said to them, okay, now just stitch around here. They just looked at me like I, I, <laughs> like they couldn't believe I would suggest such a thing. They said, we can't do any stitching that shows on the machine. I said, what do you mean? They said, no, no, we can't do that. So we have had some on our mission trips now, a wonderful sewing teacher that's come with us to show them how to do more with the sewing machine. But they, that shows you. Here they do all this beautiful embroidery, and they're not at all um, self-confident about their work on the sewing machine. So um, we, when I first got this order, it was just serendipitous. It was through our next door neighbor who um, has a line of, of uh, handmade rugs and, and other things that she sells to a lot of the decorators, interior designers in Dallas. And she said, she came home one day from meeting with one of them and said, uh, I, I'm working with this interior designer that's doing hotel rooms in Costa Rica for two hotels. And she says, it's just all neutrals and she needs something to make those rooms pop. And I said, well, my next door neighbor has these beautiful pillows from Honduras. And she said, could I take some to show her? I said, well, of course, you can take all you want to show her. So the, then she, she loved them. She planned the rooms with one of uh, two of these pillows on each bed to give it some life and said she was putting them in the design and then we didn't hear anything for almost two years. And then we got an email that said they're not gonna use the pillows in the room. And then the next day I got a purchase order for 900 of them. <laughs> so, um, and I thought, okay, so I'm figuring out how many can each co-op make and how many people do they have in there and all this. And I figured, okay, we can do 900. It's going to be pushing it, but we can do 900 and whatever it was. And then I'd get, every day, I would get another purchase order. Oh, we forgot. We forgot. We only put one in each room here. We need two in each room. We forgot this tower over here. We, and it got to 1,402. And I thought, what have I done to these poor women? <laughs> you know, it's just, ah. so um, the first one wasn't too bad. There were three deadlines with so many pillows for each deadline. So the big one was in the middle. And so I went down and I, I said, okay, I need somebody, I need two or three people from every co-op there for a meeting on the first morning. And so I said to them, okay, here's, here's the deal. Here's what these people want. And here's how much money you can make doing this. Here's how much we'll charge them. And so they said, we can do it, we'll do it. I said, well, you need to figure out how you're gonna do it. So they figured out that the best way to do it was to 
cut all of them in one location. Go to Santa Cruz Rio, do all the cutting there, and then move, uh, then each day, the women who had come from each of the co-ops would take those back and let the women who couldn't come uh, start working on them. So they would start embroidering. And so that's the way they did it on each of the three orders. And miraculously, I know that some of them stayed up <laughs> until one and two in the morning embroidering. They got it done. They, when I got down there each time to pack everything up for the shippers to come, um, because they were going to Costa Rica, we didn't have to get through the United States. That helped a lot. Um, they, they had them all ready, and they were beautiful. They were, um, I, so I check each one, and this is a funny little thing that happened. There are these little circles on them, and they put little different little designs in the circles. And I'm going through checking, and I look at one of them, and I just go, <laughs> it, it had a swastika in the little circle, well, which is a design element from thousands of years. If you go to different um, sites in Europe and the Middle East and area, you see it's just a design element, but they had no idea. And I found it on three different pillows. And so we had to have a history lesson right on the spot. And I had to explain what that was. And, and they, they were just appalled. They were, they were mortified that they'd done that, but they didn't know. And so before I even finished telling them about it, they're pulling those stitches out and changing them to something else and right there on the spot and getting it done. But that was, it was a, just a, an interesting little indication of the, the difference in education and difference in background and everything that they have. Um, so anyway, they got them all done. It was beautiful. And, and the, there's a picture on our, our website of one of the hotel's rooms with them in. So every time that I thought that things were just, you know, really a disaster or going downhill or something, something wonderful would happen. Um, we got that hotel order. We got to come to the New York International Gift Fair, which is now called New York Now, for um, five times. And so we got into some stores um, around the country and some in foreign countries. But it just was too expensive to keep doing. Um, the number of pillows we sell, no matter how many stores, they usually want to buy six to 12 pillows because they don't have a lot of room. Um, and so it just, it just wasn't paying off. So we, we stopped doing that, but it was a wonderful experience and it gave us some, some legitimacy um, to be able to say that we had done that. And, and it's juried and we got in right away. So it was really a statement about the women's work. Um, we've had uh, an order for, uh, well, we had a commission from Margaret McDermott, who's the widow of one of the founders of Texas Instruments in Dallas. And she is a lover of textiles. And she had come to one of our sales and bought 50 of one square pillow. And I thought, she must be giving these as Christmas gifts or something. And she said, no, I'm going to use them as um, placemats at my dinner parties. And so after that, it was really funny because every once in a while we would be selling them and somebody would say, oh, Mrs. McDermott has these as placemats. 
<laughs> so they are very famous as placemats for her dinner parties. Uh, she commissioned us to do a $100,000 um, four feet by eight foot piece that was poor, poor Pamela. She designed it, but it was kind of designed by committee because everybody had an idea about what should be in this piece. But it was for Parkland Hospital, and it was to show uh, how many different countries um, the staff and the, the doctors and the patients come from and the different languages they speak are all around the outside. So there's this huge map of the world and um, in the background are like the colors of all those, all those countries' flags and it was, it was monumental and the women loved doing it. 